I've got some really exciting news for y'all. We have been nominated for a Webby for Best Technology Podcast. A great big thank you for making this Webby a possibility. If you want to vote for the Traceroute Podcast for the People's Voice Award on the Webbies, go to bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. That's bit.ly slash traceroutewebby. Or click the link that is included in the show notes. The internet, a lot of people assume is just uh, sort of magical, like it's air that we breathe or electricity that just happens to be available to us. But in order for everything to continue to grow and reach its ultimate capability, we need systems and technologies and businesses that allow that infrastructure to grow. This is Traceroute, a podcast about the inner workings of our digital world, all the physical stuff that most of us never have to think about. In a world that is increasingly defined by digital, we look at the real people and services building, maintaining, and scaling the internet. I'm your host, Grace Andrews, a technical storyteller at Equinix, the world's digital infrastructure company. In this episode, Interconnection. Today's internet exists not just because of plucky tech entrepreneurs or successful Wall Street IPOs. It exists because of infrastructure. The roads and bridges built over decades to allow the internet to function as it does today. We take a lot for granted. Lightning-fast download speeds on our smartphones, thousands of family pictures being stored in the cloud, the ability to do a lot of our jobs remotely for the last year. Obviously, this took a lot more than a few lines of code. In this series, we'll look at the stack, the different parts of internet infrastructure. We'll talk about how they were developed, why they matter, and why continued open access and interconnection is vital to the world as we know it. There was a number of people, a fairly sophisticated group of engineers who said the internet could never scale. By the end of 1996, it was just going to collapse because it was just too distributed. Technology just couldn't handle it. That's Jay Adelson. He's a serial entrepreneur currently focused on his gaming company. But back in 1998, he helped to start a company called Equinix, a neutral internet exchange carrier. The internet was on fire, but Adelson saw trouble on the horizon. Companies and tech founders were creating little corners of influence. The online world was splintering. But how did we even get to this point? DARPA was initially created as a reaction to the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik in the fall of 1957. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency born during the Cold War, is ironically the moment when the U.S. starts learning the value of interconnectivity. Sputnik was the world's first artificial satellite, and it created eventually a panic in the United States and a fundamental reorganizing of national security agencies. It was, in essence, the nation's first space agency before the creation of NASA. But it was also given this very broad mandate to take on those research projects as directed by the Secretary of Defense. So this idea that it 
would try to create new technologies even beyond space to keep the Pentagon, the military ahead of the Soviets. Sharon Weinberg is a national security reporter and editor. She spent 20 years focusing on the intersection of science, tech, and national security. And she wrote a book called The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA, the Pentagon Agency that Changed the World. Sharon says DARPA initially focused on what you might expect, space programs, rockets, missile defense. But it was also thinking about communications. It was looking at command and control of nuclear weapons, because, of course, this was what was really the threat of Sputnik and the Soviet Union was the concern that the Soviets, if they could launch a satellite into space, they could launch an intercontinental ballistic missile that would reach the United States from the Soviet Union very quickly. So then we get to the birth of ARPANET, the precursor of the Internet, a network where computers could communicate with each other. Yeah, this is still sort of early days of computers. DARPA was being sort of saddled with an old air defense computer, big, large, white elephant of a computer that was part of command and control and told to do something with it. So DARPA hired JCR Licklider, an internet hero that you may have never heard of. Licklider was a psychologist. Before working at a federal agency, he was in academia, doing early computer experiments at MIT. So when he came into DARPA, You know, what he said is, let's step back for a moment and think more fundamentally about how humans interact with computers. You know, he was really forward thinking. He sort of looked ahead and said, the way that we work with computers is going to fundamentally change, you know, our society. Eventually, the proposal became a prototype and a handful of nodes became the first ARPANET network. In 1969, a researcher at UCLA sent the very first message over ARPANET to the Stanford Research Institute. The very first message was low. Um, And I remember hearing about the first time, like, oh, maybe it was going to be low and behold, like some sort of historic message. And actually what it was was login, and it failed after the first two letters. By the 1970s, we'd have something closer to email messages. But the user base was still limited. A few ARPA headquarters some universities, just a few nodes. But after years of innovation, the network did start scaling. And that worried some people. DARPA as an agency, like all parts of the Pentagon, was under a lot of funding pressure because there was a lot of blowback from the Vietnam War. You know, there was a lot of pressure for the military to only fund things. You know, why are they getting into social science? And um, so the DARPA director at the time joked, um, you know, he was looking around for projects to kill like, oh, computer networking. You know, what does this have to do with waging warfare? And he almost he's like, I was the man who almost killed the Internet because he was about to pull the funding. And whom exactly was this technology for? One of the real challenges to the early ARPANET was convincing the nodes, these research institutes and universities, that this was worth their time because people so jealously guarded their access to computer time. It was a really valued asset. You have to really explain to people what is this for. And so one of the examples that Licklider gave was, you know, you could be in your kitchen and you could down, you, you, I don't think the word he used was download, but you could access recipes from a library. 
and I remember the guy I was interviewing said, like, oh, well, you know, what would I, what, what I want to do that for? He just couldn't understand, or at least that was the thing he could grasp onto. Okay, that's something I could use it for. Well, I don't cook. So, but, but this very, the, the magic of what Licklider did and his greatest contributions to the internet, which I don't think are credit enough today, was this real messianic view he had of trying to get people to understand why you would want computers to speak to each other. Over time, it made less and less sense for this new technology to be kept under lock and key by the government. They didn't really need it for defense systems, and there were a lot of smart people realizing that the interconnected systems could have broader applications. By the 90s, the internet would be completely phased out of DARPA, becoming commercially viable and consumer-friendly. But the military legacy can't be overlooked. It accelerated this work possibly by decades because there was no other agency in the world like DARPA that could, you know, the initial conversation to fund ARPANET in the mid-1960s was something like, you know, a 15-minute conversation where the director said, sure, okay, you can have a million dollars. So yes, we would have had a computer network, but it would have been later. And would it be like the internet? And of course... There is the unsung hero behind it all. We tend in American society, especially these days, to love, you know, the the Steve Jobs, the Elon Musk. You know, J.C.R. Licklider is not a household name today. He didn't start the Licklider computer internet company. But the ARPANET is an example of this interaction between government research and the private sector and the fact that it's rarely one person who is the sole inventor or key to something's success. But how does the internet go from a Pentagon-centered closed tool to an open web? First, it spreads to more universities and becomes an important research tool. Coders start creating new languages and protocols. Before long, people have internet in their homes, tying up their phone lines. By the 90s, we're becoming more and more connected, and it's time for the regulators to step in. I mean, I had gotten onto the internet back in the 80s, and that was more just as a, as a curiosity. I've been playing with computers since the 70s. John Morris is a lawyer who's been involved in internet content issues for decades. Back in the 80s, commercial communications were prohibited on the internet. The internet was only for government and academic communication. And so the critical evolution really started in the late 80s and and into the 90s is that the government decided to um, essentially devolve and give up its control over this internet. The unique, decentralized nature of the internet made it easy to scale. In the 90s, you know, the, an internet connection would you know, maybe just get to a developing nation in Africa, um, you know, and say Kenya was one of the early countries on the internet. Um, but if a neighboring country wanted to connect to the internet, all they really had to do was to figure out a way to connect to Kenya. They didn't have to do anything to connect to the rest of the world if they could find someone in Kenya who would allow them to connect through, um, then a whole new nation could come on. And that was really the difference that really set the internet apart. 
In the most basic sense, interconnection is about private data exchange between businesses. It happens in physical locations where multiple networks can connect to each other. But, says Morris, as more people got onto the internet, these connection points became congested. If they're only interconnected in a single place in the country, then any traffic, any communication going from one network to the other has to flow through that one single place. You know, AOL was an early email service provider, and amazingly, all AOL email went through Reston, Virginia, even into the 2000s. And so if an AOL customer in Argentina was sending an email to an AOL customer in Ecuador, that email would go through Reston, Virginia, which means that essentially the AOL network was not interconnected in a, in a granular level. It was really a fairly centralized email system. And that actually had enormous um, implications for security, government surveillance, all kinds of things. Um, that email was all flowing through Reston, Virginia. Networks grow into an increasingly complicated web. And then the rules of the game changed and growth exploded. That's the day that one could set up business on the internet. And so it's not really that setting up business on the internet really transformed the internet as much as it opened up complete new business models that could support all of the services that we know today. The commercial growth continued, and then came the Telecommunications Act of 1996. A massive, sprawling piece of legislation. Its primary focus really was to try to generate more competition in the telecommunications market. I mean, more competition among phone companies. AT&T had been broken up, um, and it was broken up into um, a, a bunch of little kind of tiny AT&Ts. So while the focus was really on phone companies, there were also big implications for the future of how we would connect to the internet. It created the opportunity for um, what were called CLEX, these new competitive local exchange carriers. Some of them began to offer DSL service, which was a slightly higher speed way to access the internet. Because prior to about the mid-90s, the only real way you could access the internet was through a very slow dial-up telephone modem. And that really led to the birth of the broadband internet. And once we had higher speeds on the internet, well, then we could have things like video, things like real-time communication. But it also created some issues for the connection points. The 96 Act also facilitated and kind of laid the groundwork for um, more exchange points that could be run by private companies not affiliated with the existing telephone companies. Really, the 96 Act paved the way for the broadband internet, but it also paved the way for an interconnected internet where any company with a relatively low investment could come in um, to really a neutral place to exchange traffic. And why would it even matter if there were neutral exchange points anyway? Part of the problem following the 96 Act is that actually the incumbent phone companies 
you know, were forced to allow other companies to connect into their central offices, but they were very, very resistant in, in terms of permitting equal access to those central offices. And so the competitive companies had to jump through all kinds of difficult bureaucratic hoops just to get access to their own equipment in the central offices. And that really was one of the sparks that led to um, kind of a proliferation of exchange points, places where traffic could be exchanged outside of phone company facilities. Um, so it, it absolutely lay a foundation for many of the physical parts of the internet that really underlie it today. So the internet is gaining steam. Commercial companies could get involved. There was a huge opportunity for companies to come in and make money owning connection points, controlling the interconnection that was growing every day. Those commercial companies increasingly wanted control over the wires. And the decentralized nature of the internet, the thing that made it so special and resilient, was at risk. Cable companies, which, like the phone companies, had wires running all around the nation, the cable companies said, well, hey, we can get in and try to compete providing communications over our wires. But then there was a pretty big debate. Would the cable companies' networks be kind of controlled by a single company that only allowed one company to provide internet access over the cable network? Or would the cable companies be required to have an open access regime where any number of companies, small Celex and others, could compete to provide services to cable companies? This eventually leads us to the net neutrality debate, which relates to open access. Should phone companies or cable companies pick and choose preferred internet providers? Should they get to control what consumers have access to? You know, could, if I signed up for AT&T internet, would AT&T be able to say that, um, that the only search engine I could use would be Bing? You know, I couldn't use Google. Or would I have a choice to go to any search engine I want? And, you know, at least it, it's been a struggle in the network, net neutrality arena. Um, but thankfully, we have a reasonably open network today. In the end, the Telecommunications Act actually had surprising, long-lasting impacts on the internet, and that includes infrastructure. You know, the 96 Act really did pave the way for all of the pieces of infrastructure that make up modern internet today. So exchange points and non-phone company carriers of backbone traffic and, and all. And there are a whole range of, of critical companies um, that are kind of behind the scenes. And, and those companies, their existence was facilitated by the 96 Act. To this day, the Telecommunications Act has helped create a system where the internet could get faster and faster because it was decentralized. What's also developed because of interconnection is services, um, both run by network operators, but also run by other companies, that allow video to be hosted in dozens or hundreds of places around the internet, so that if I want to connect to it, I only have to connect to something that's much, much closer than California. I connect to something that's just, you know, 10, 20 miles away, 
And because there's good connections, it only goes through um, two or three connections or what we call two or three hops on the internet to get to me from the source to the recipient. And so, I mean, it was critically important that um, that we, you know, kind of enable very broad, ubiquitous connection to allow large and small speakers to be able to reach their audiences uh, quickly and reliably and without necessarily being throttled or regulated by an individual network provider. But with regulation comes great responsibility, and the commercial wave of growth that followed meant more possible breaking points for the internet. Equinix is the largest data center company and interconnection business in the entire world. And I started it with Al Avery back in 1998. This is a business that was built ultimately to help the internet scale and reach its potential. That's Jay Adelson, co-founder of Equinix, and he's the guy behind these data centers. He's someone who's witnessed the growth of the commercial side of the internet firsthand. For him, the 90s was when the internet really stopped being nice and started getting real. Yeah, that's a 90s real-world reference. You're welcome. And at that time, there really wasn't an understanding both with the government or even the research community that the internet would be this commercial, amazing thing that it's become. And so the idea at the time was to basically hand the reins of the internet off to the top five largest telephone companies at the time, companies like AT&T and Sprint. This brings us back to a term we've talked about before, network access points, basically exchange points. And if you wanted to connect to anyone else, you would have to pay them to connect to them. Now, this probably made sense at the time because telephone companies really, they they weren't officially in the internet business. But as soon as the internet started to get exciting in 95 and 96, they started selling internet services. And so ultimately, the people who controlled the airports, it would be like an airport was owned by an airline and then charged a tax to their competitors to come land at their airport. This was still early days. We're talking very few websites and a handful of search engines like Netscape. And all those old school message boards where you could find people discussing just about everything. People could see the potential, but we weren't there yet. Some classic methods of expanding infrastructure served as a blueprint, but only to a point. Railroads were instrumental in how the internet got actually scaled because they provided the right of way to run fiber optic cable or copper cable without interruption over long distances. And in fact, when we talk about the initial development of the telephone industry, the telecom industry, it was really the railroads that provided the, you know, the telegraph and the telephone connections. So it's not a surprise that very similarly you had these sort of disparate networks that would initially connect to one major backbone that was operated by the National Science Foundation. But that that backbone that would haul traffic from one region to another region, you know, much like the interstate highway system, had to keep growing and it got expensive. And so I think 
it was a logical conclusion that a single network wasn't going to scale economically. But then there was a secondary question, which was, all right, how do we handle the technology, the routing, all of these autonomous networks? How do we prioritize traffic across this network? A big piece of that would be nodes, places where different networks could connect with each other. The internet would need to be built differently than centralized systems, and it would be set apart from previous ways information could travel, whether over phone lines or train tracks. The nodes or exchange points where different networks met became a bottleneck. Right around 1997, the operators of the internet, the content, the providers who who created content on the internet, and the enterprises that started to use it for critical services became concerned that these central exchange points were both congested and overpriced. And the performance of the internet was never going to get any better. It was starting to decline pretty quickly. And so all of these business models were basically threatened by this by these problems at these core exchanges. So the concept of a neutral exchange model was a potential solution to this problem. A technological innovation was needed, and Jay Adelson had an idea. The truth is, is that a real simple solution is sometimes the best. And much like, you know, telephone operators plugging cables into, you know, different patch panels, we were doing that in a data center. More equality would help the internet grow, and that philosophy also became a business model. We said, hey, let's make a flat-rated cross-connect the business model or a flat-rated port charge the business model and not be a network service provider ourselves. And that innovation, that concept, which may seem obvious, was not obvious. Certainly at cocktail parties, they think I'm either a health club or a credit bureau. Peter Van Camp is executive chairman at Equinix. He joined the founders, Jay Adelson and Andy Smith, very early on at the company. And he jokes that even all these years later, people don't always know which companies are responsible for those lightning fast internet connections. Even if you have access to wires and towers, you still need many networks to be able to interact freely for the internet to continue to scale and business to be built. But to build the right kind of neutral infrastructure needed... I don't think Equinix could have been created if it wasn't for the time we were in. This is the late 90s, if you remember. And you remember a dot-com bubble formed around the internet opportunity that everybody was staring at. And so capital flowing so freely towards internet opportunities enabled this to happen. But even the earliest days of Equinix required a great deal of capital. And the original build plan was covering six major markets in the United States. New York, Washington, D.C., which is really Northern Virginia. It was Dallas, Chicago, Silicon Valley, Los Angeles. Then a bigger ecosystem could emerge around these neutral connection points. Data centers at the time, Most of them actually were owned by the internet networks or the telecommunications companies who were offering internet access. And those were used, originally created, 
to have more value for the customers of those networking companies by being able to host their websites or maybe IT platforms, what, what have you, if you're just outsourcing your data center requirement. But when they recognize the growth of the internet and the ability to scale it and be global in its reach, it was very difficult from an AT&T data center to then trench the fiber and uh, extend the network over to a Sprint data center. But all of these major backbones realized that uh, there would be value to interconnecting at that point in time, but they weren't going to trust going to each other's data center. And then the cost of this intricate, almost spaghetti-like fabric that was going between each data center just was not going to make sense from a cost or scaling standpoint. Equinix, extending a neutral playing field to all these companies, was vital in increasing interconnection, helping data centers, networks, and a growing number of companies talk to each other efficiently. The reality of how fast it needed to grow and what it needed to be from a, uh, just a reliability and resilience standpoint, it needed uh, just infrastructure that was specifically designed for this and was, uh, was run to support that, uh, that growth. And as Alan and Jay, even before I arrived at the company, had uh, visualized as they created this vision, uh, the goal was to be the stewards of the internet's infrastructure. The dot-com boom in the late 90s helped the company begin and grow, but the internet bust put Equinix in danger as well. As the, uh, the bubble began to leak, everyone was seeing, oh my, this is not going to end well. And Equinix, in fact, uh, had a number of customers that we had acquired and a number of cages, to use that term of what's inside a data center dedicated to a specific customer in a multi-data center environment, a number of our cages never were filled. And so we lost many customers, churned a great deal of committed revenue through the bankruptcies that took place. Though the recovery was slow and painful, the internet didn't take long to write itself. And as the internet grew and changed, the needs of infrastructure also changed over time. And that in turn changed what customers could have and what they might want. In the 2000s, there was an understanding that the bandwidth would be available. There was a change of philosophy from one of constraint where people thought, well, there's no way that I'm ever going to be able to deliver enough data across a phone line to actually do this type of application remotely. That shifted really quickly. It shifted because largely on part of, due to the neutral exchanges, the cost of traffic dropped precipitously. It went from hundreds of dollars per megabit or thousands of dollars per megabit to pennies. More giant data centers were being built places that held interconnection points, but also a lot of processing power. And when that happened through the competition and the neutrality and the, and, and the availability of bandwidth, all of that allowed these new models around data centers to start to emerge. Where instead of, you know, a company 
having their computer room in their office where they were running these big computers that, you know, these, these larger mini computers or even, even servers and having to have a person who knew how to operate it and having to have all the power there and redundancy and having a generator in the garage to keep it running, it moved to one where it actually made financial sense to take all of that content whether it's your email or your files or your video and move it to the same building that the interconnection was at. So like a year and a half of my daughter's childhood went from 20,000 square foot data centers to 500,000 square foot data centers. And that meant that not only would Equinix have to build larger data centers to handle hundreds or thousands of different types of customers coming in there, but also the very largest of all of the content providers, companies like Google and Facebook would need to really start building their own because they were just, they would take a hundred thousand square feet in one in one city. And this is in the early two thousands. Now, if you look at it, fast forward to, to 2020, a company like Amazon or Google has hundreds of data centers all over the world, and they are enormous and single purpose. As the ecosystem evolved, the tech giants like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google continued to build out their own massive data centers. But neutral exchange points, the place where interconnection happens, are still important today. And the health of that ecosystem, that solid, dependable infrastructure, and the fact that it's interconnected has proven vital. Whether we're talking about the dot-com boom of the 90s or the Zoom boom of 2020, Jay Adelson, co-founder of Equinix, reiterates just how important a commitment to open access really is to the internet today and in the future. I believe that there's a commitment across the industry and the supply chain, whether it be enterprises or telecom companies or neutral data center companies. I think everybody's still very committed to, to an open framework by which they can interconnect with each other and do what they need to do within their sort of their various camps. I don't see a technology breaking point coming anytime soon. And I do believe that the neutral exchange model combined with edge computing and moving applications to where they need to be, it scales pretty well. It's expensive, but it scales pretty well. But even without a technology breaking point, there are still other things that could threaten future growth. I think the problems that we're facing is sort of the, uh, the Pandora's box we opened by making it so easy and so globalized for people to communicate so freely. Everything that I dreamed of, the internet could be for good, has now been realized to be used for evil. And I, and I hate to say it like that. I, I don't think that there's a Dr. Evil sitting behind, you know, petting a cat. But what we've seen in terms of the abuse of people's data, um, the political climate, misinformation, uh, the culture we've built around using the internet, uh, that's the breaking point that we're facing right now. And, and neutral exchange and interconnection, while I do believe you know, historically was necessary and I don't regret creating that scalability, 
I think that now we have to be sensitive, you know, in net neutrality debates and all of these things are related to this. We have to be sensitive to this problem of information and how it's used. And, um, and I, and I do believe that it's, it's not just the responsibility of the consumers. And I don't believe it's just the responsibility of the Facebooks and the Googles. I think that it's a shared responsibility. Next time on Traceroute. One thing that I think people don't understand about silicon, it's like, oh, why do we care about semiconductors at all? We don't care. We want to use Google. We want to use Facebook. Well, it turns out it is the essential building block of computing. And it is the thing that everybody needs to do everything from electric vehicles to finding life on Mars to discovering cures for cancer and playing games with your friends. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Traceroute, an Equinix production. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to get in touch? You can learn more by heading to origins.dev. That's origins.dev. I'm your host, Grace Andrews. Thanks for listening.